Bibles to John chapter 4. Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 4. And uh, we're going to, as we're looking at the studies in the life of Christ, we're going to look at, uh, we're looking at now the encounters of Christ, the encounters that Jesus had with different people in his earthly ministry. And this morning we're going to look at Jesus and the woman at the well, verses 3 through 42. So let's begin with chapter 4, with verses 1 through 3. And John says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. Jesus, for the most part, was rejected by the people in Judea. Now, if there was ever a place where Jesus should have been received, it was Judea. But they were the most hostile towards Jesus. Their unbelief was was the strongest among those who rejected Christ. And as a result of their unbelief, Jesus left them. And the word translated left here, all right, it is a very strong verb, And it's not the usual word used for leaving one place to go to another. The word left here means to leave, to go away from one, to depart from anyone. It also means in order to go to another place. It can also mean to depart from one and leave him to himself so that all mutual privileges are abandoned. In other words... You know, whatever relationship and privileges Jesus had with somebody else or some people, he would abandon them because they wouldn't receive him. So Jesus left Judea. He abandoned Judea and the people lost all the privileges that they would have had with them if they had received them. And he left because he wasn't received there. And that's what happens to people, anybody, you who reject Jesus. You see, you will eventually be abandoned as well as all the privileges that you could have had because you reject them. But if you keep on rejecting the pleadings of Christ, one day he will respond in the same way. Isaiah 55, 6, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. Or you may lose your chance. What a blessing Jesus could have been to the people in Judea. But you see, they turned him down just like so many people do uh, to their own eternal destruction. And the punishment for unbelief in the end is terrible. There is no worse punishment than what one experiences when they reject reject Christ in the end. Look at verse 4. But he needed to go through Samaria. Now in the King James, it says he must go through through Samaria. Now, if a person was going to travel from Judea to Galilee, they need to go through the area of Samaria. And many of the Jews of Judea, because of their hatred of the Samaritans, they would cross the Jordan and travel to Galilee by going through Perea, the area east of Jordan. So the word must or needed here all right, involves more than just the the shortest route. It involved a plan of life. 
That is, Jesus had a plan for his life. In his case, the plan involved talking with this woman at the well. So it wasn't just some chance thing that happened. This was a part of the plan for his life. Having a plan for your life will make your life a profit. It will make your life worthwhile instead of a loss. It will make you an achiever, not a failure. You see, Jesus wasn't a disorganized, aimless person who just wandered about in his earthly ministry. You know, a lot of times we think as he's going out in his earthly ministry, well, he's going here and he's going there. And this is what happened when he got here. Just this just happened to happen. It took place. And no, he had a plan. He had a purpose. His life was organized. Everything in his earthly ministry was a plan for his life. And it was an organized plan. That's why we see Christ's life here on earth as as a prophet, as a benefit. He was an achiever and not a failure. And so again, he wasn't disorganized or aimless, just wandering around his, his time here on earth. His whole life was organized with a divine plan and a divine purpose. Jesus had places to go. He had a schedule to follow. He was on God's time. In following this divine plan, he did, he did wonderful things. Now, on the other hand, if Jesus was like a lot of people, he wouldn't have had much uh, to show for in his earthly ministry. He had a lot to do in his short stay here on earth. So he had to have a plan, an organized plan. A lot of people live their whole life on earth just going through life as it happens. Whatever happens, happens in their life. That's their idea. You know, whatever it is, that's, that's all it is. And they wander through life, going here, going there. No plans, no organization, no, no, nothing there. And then they may get to the end of their life, this, at the end of this short stay on earth. They look back and go, man, I, what did I accomplish? What did I do? What do I have to show for it? Every great structure, that is every great building that was ever built, it had a blueprint. It had a blueprint before it started. And many times those who don't achieve anything in life, they complain. Well, you know, that person, they were, you know, they were born wealthy and they were born to a good family. You know, they were born with a silver spoon in their mouth and, and, you know, they had money and they had a better chance at education, blah, blah, blah. Everything was better for them than, than my life. When in reality, their failure was due to, to no planning. They had no plan in their life or they were just lazy. It says here that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. The divine plan called for Jesus to have a meeting with this Samaritan woman so that he she so that so that she could be saved. And so that she could lead many others to Christ. You see, Jesus didn't save us to sit. He saved us to serve. He saved us to do the same thing as he saved this woman. She went out and led many others to Christ. If Jesus doesn't go through Samaria, this is not going to happen. So you see, he pursues God's plan for him. And he makes this mission a high priority. 
And he accomplished a lot in his earthly ministry because he kept to the plan that the Father had laid out for him. Jesus put a high priority on what he was called to do in his life. And as a result, he carried it out. Even as a young boy, God's plan had top priority in Jesus' life. Remember when Mary, uh, Joseph and Mary uh, left the temple and halfway down the road, or as far as they got, they realized, well, where's Jesus? Where's our son? And they went back and they found him in the temple and they rebuked him. And Jesus said, I must be about my father's business. Later on, he said, I must preach the kingdom of God. He said later on, the son of man must suffer many things. And it's all summed up in John chapter 9, verse 4, when he said, I must work the works of him who sent me. Notice, I must, I must. It was a priority. He wasn't saying, well, you know, I got to do this later on. And, you know, well, I'll, I'll do this first and I'll, I'll do that. Later. No, I must. This is what I have to do right now. He was sticking to the father's plan. We also must put the work of God. That is the plan for your life as the highest priority. If you want God's plan in your life to come to pass. Verses five and six. So he came to a city. Speaking of Jesus, Jesus came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar. Near the plot of ground that Jacob, uh, that, that Jacob gave to his uh, son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So Jesus now, worn out from his travels, he sits down at the well around noon when the sun is beating down when it's its hottest. He's tired and he's thirsty and he wants a drink of water. So here we have now the stage set for this fateful meeting between Jesus and the woman. Here we're about to learn why he needed to go there. He's tired. He's worn out. He's thirsty. Jesus is sitting in the heat of the day. He's waiting for a woman that he knew would arrive at the well. He's waiting for her to come. Verses 7 through 8. Then a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. What was this woman like? Her marital and extramarital relationships would seem to say that she wasn't concerned very much with moral principles. And it doesn't take long to find out that she had a quick mind and a sharp tongue. She had a whole lot of religious opinions. She had a strange mixture of, mixture of error and truth when it came to religion. Jesus must have really enjoyed talking to her almost as much as he enjoyed how things turned out after he talked to her. He started their con conversation, notice, as soon as she got to the well. Now, it was an unusual time of the day to draw water, uh, especially because the sun was at its highest and hottest point. Then this woman probably didn't want to have to deal with the smirks and the nasty looks of the other women who gathered around uh, at the cooler part of the day. So she went in the hottest part of the day and the other ladies went at the, the, the later in the day. She didn't want to have to deal with these ladies as they looked at her and smirked at her and probably gossiped about her. You see, her lifestyle, no doubt, had given the, the other ladies plenty of stuff for the town gossips to talk about. Jesus said to her when she gets to the well, give me a drink. Now think about this for a minute. 
He's asking her to give him a drink. Here's the creator of the world. Here's the creator of the oceans and the rivers and the lakes and the streams. He's thirsty. He's at a well. She had a bucket. And he asks her for a drink. If Jesus wanted to, he could have just wished that the underground spring that fed into that well would just come up overflowing with water. Centuries before, he brought water out of the rock for Moses. His first miracle was changing water into wine in Canaan. In Cana. But he never once performed a miracle for his own benefit. Because he was here to experience in every way the joys and the sorrows of life. A part of life is experiencing hunger. Being tired, thirsty, pain and suffering. And he did this so he could sympathize with us. So that he could understand and comfort us in our needs and our troubles and be our comforter. Jesus went to see a needy woman. But at at face value, it looked like he was the needy one because he's the one who's asking for water. But as we know, things aren't always the way they seem when we're with Jesus. He had seen and he had heard. He knew that this needy woman needed him. And, and, And he knew her better than she knew herself. And then an amazing conversation takes place with Jesus responding to the woman's statements at every step. Seven times we read that the woman said, or or, or something close to it. The conversation starts with a word of indignation in verses 9 through 10. Notice what she says. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She starts with the question of racial prejudice. And then she brings that up again in verse 20. The Jews don't have any dealings with Samaritans. The Jews disliked the Samaritans so much that they, would, that, that they would go from Judea to Galilee by way of Perea so that they wouldn't have to go through Samaria. Not only that, the Jews wouldn't eat or drink with the Samaritans like the Egyptians wouldn't eat with the Jews during Joseph's time. You see, there was a lot of animosity by the Jews for the Samaritans. And the reason is, is that the Samaritans were considered half-breeds. Because, you see, they were a mixture of Jewish people with Assyrian and Babylonian people through intermarriage in the land after the captivity of the northern kingdom. Now, Jesus didn't directly answer her question when she asked, what are you, a Jew, doing here talking with a Samaritan? Instead, he directed her to the attention of God. Notice how important this is when we share with people. We need to get right to the point and not get caught up in, in explaining another conversation. We need to go right to God. He tells her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. 
Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, speaking of the well water. But whoever drinks of the living water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Here are two amazing things. First, he is a Jew and he's asking her for a drink. Secondly, he claimed to have living water that, that, that he was more than willing to give her. Now, in saying this, Jesus told her all she needed to know to obtain salvation. What was it? Well, the water of life. Who controlled it? He did. How to how, how get it? Ask him. And then receive it as the gift of God. Everything she needed to know to receive salvation, Jesus just told her. Now, in verses 11 through 14, you know, it comes a word of decision. We see here the woman's instinctive thoughtfulness in verses 11 and 12. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? So she's already raised her opinion about him. Remember when she first talked to him, she said, you are a Jew. You being a Jew, now she calls him sir. So she's raised her opinion about him. But she's still confused because she's still thinking about the water in the well. She says it's very deep. You see, she was thinking about Jacob who dug that well. And had to dig through solid rock, which was quite an achievement. And she claims Jacob as being our father. Our father Jacob dug this well. Well, that was a false claim because she wasn't, the, you know, Jacob wasn't the, the father of the alien Samaritans. But notice Jesus didn't argue about that either. He didn't quibble about that. Pretty soon he would introduce her to his father, the heavenly father, who could be sure, who surely could become her father. You know, as Jesus simply offered her again, the appealing offer of never thirsting again. Appealing to this woman's inner thirst that she had. She was thirsty. She had this inner thirst and, and he's appealing to that now. Look at verses 13 and 14. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. She was thinking literally about the water in the well. Jesus was speaking to her figuratively, speaking of the living water that he was, that he wanted to give her. The physical or the literal was used as an illustration of the spiritual. But she hadn't caught on yet. She was still thinking about some magical well of water. She didn't know that, she, that, that Jesus was speaking of himself. And like I said, she was thinking about some magical well of water as what she says next shows us. Notice in verse 15. The woman said to, her, to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. He said, the woman asks for this mysterious water that would relieve the thirst that she had this, 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 to, to relieve her need that, so that she wouldn't have to make these trips every day to the well. Again, she couldn't follow what Jesus was, was 
speaking about. She couldn't follow the symbolism, but she could hint, notice, at her own deep need. You know, give me this water so that I don't have to come to this well to get water. She could ask for this water of life this strange man was talking about. And she did ask for it. Now she was asking him for a drink. Give me of this water. Just as as he had asked her before for a drink. You see, now this was a giant step forward for her in, in her spiritual wanderings. But notice, Jesus doesn't give the gift of eternal life without first dealing with the question of sin. And as soon as she made known that she wanted the gift of living water, Jesus puts his finger now on what was causing her quenchless thirst. It was sin. And right away, she gets defensive. Look at verses 16 and 8 through 18. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have said, well, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband that you spoke truly. I'm sure she's going, oh boy, I didn't want it to go this far. (laughs) The woman backed off from the sensitive issue. She's trying to keep from being exposed. She doesn't want to talk about her life. First, there comes this disturbing disturbing reservation in verse 16. Notice. This disturbing, you know, he says, go call your husband and tell him to come here. Jesus said, in effect, you know what? You want this water of life? He said, then I, like a doctor, must first put my hand on the infectious growth of your sin in your life, which makes eternal life impossible. It's the sentence of death in your life. I have to deal with that first. And at the first sign of this unwelcome but unmistaken knowledge of her condition, she pulls away. That was a sore spot in her life. She knew it and she didn't want to deal with it. She may have been telling herself for years, like many people do, I'm okay. My life is okay. I'm happy. There's nothing wrong with the way that I'm living. Yet all along, she knew it was wrong. That's why she's asking for this water. The thing that really bothered her and caused her to step back is that the water of life could only be obtained by dealing with some definite, personal, awkward preconditions that led to a defensive reaction. The woman answered Jesus, I have no husband. You see, she shied away from this topic, probably bothered by the sudden change of subject. She may have still still thought to herself, this strange Jew couldn't possibly know the story of my life. He couldn't be put off or he could be put off. He just might say, forget about this. He could just he could be put off if he finds out more about me and goes deeper into what my life is. And a lot of times we think, you know, because of my life, it's been so bad. or I've done such terrible things or it's gone on for so long that that Jesus won't have anything to do with me. And that's what she's thinking here. 
The more he finds out about me, the less likely he wants to have anything to do with me. So she simply gave her her present marital status. I'm not married. I have no husband. Trying to hide the five husbands in the past. Trying to hide what was really going on in her life. But this all led to a, to a, 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 a damaging revelation on Jesus' part. Because look at in 17, the second part of 17 and verse 18. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. Five husbands in a row. In her lifetime. Up to this point at least. But here she's trying to give the appearance of of, of, of respectability. Oh, I have no husband. I was married before, but, you know, um, those are all over with. We're not told how or why these marriages ended. Or whether by uh, death or divorce. But whatever happened, Jesus, this is the neat thing. Jesus wasn't there to find out why. You notice in this passage, he didn't say, well, why don't you tell me about it? Did you have legal grounds for divorce? What happened? Why, you know, why did you get married five times? You know, the scripture says, you know, we don't see him interrogating her. We don't see him, you know, getting, getting into the nitty gritty of what happened. You see, he knows what happens in our life. Whatever happened, Jesus wasn't there to interrogate her or find out why. The Lord was, was and is always a perfect gentleman. He's courteous and he's kind. Jesus only wanted to expose the sin, the infection. He didn't want to poke at it. He didn't want to pry into all the details of her life. And then all of this led to an encouraging word in verses 19 through 24. First came an important acknowledgement. Look, look at verses 19 through 20. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus, okay, so we'll just stop there. She started out by calling Jesus a Jew. She later called him sir, and now she's blown away by, by what he knows about her, and she calls him a prophet. He said the, the, the woman did what a lot of people do when they're being confronted with their sin. She tried changing the subject by, taking out a, uh, by asking a religious question. Oh, by the way, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that Jerusalem is a place where one is to worship. Now she gets away now from, the, her, from her marriage life. Now, Samaritan religion believed that one place of divinely ordered worship was on top or on top of the nearby Mount Gerizim, while the Jews said it was on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Who was right? Jesus ignored her attempt to change the subject and again confronted her instead with an important truth in verses 21 through 24. He started with a word about the future. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Thinking at first that Jesus was a prophet, she starts asking about where to worship, trying to get Jesus to quit talking about her past. 
talking about where to worship rather than the person to worship or the holiness in worship or the right way to worship is pretty typical of an unbeliever. Because they have all kinds of weird ideas about where they can worship and who they can worship. The bottom line is, as long as I worship, that's okay. No. There is a wrong way to worship. And those people will think about religion as long as you don't talk to them about sin and repentance. Jesus, Jesus immediately answered basically, his, his immediate answer basically said, hey, it doesn't matter when one worship. Because both Jerusalem and Samaria won't be where worship took place in the future. Verse 22. For the son, I'm sorry, for the father judges no one, but has committed, I think I'm in the wrong place here. Yes, I went too far. I was in chapter five already. Verse 22, he says, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. So it doesn't matter where you worship if you don't know who you're worshiping. The typical churchgoer, many of them are in the same category. They don't know God, nor the gospel, nor Christ. Remember, that's when Jesus told those in Matthew chapter 7, I never knew you. They didn't know him. Though they thought they did. Go to church, read the Bible. And he said, I never knew you. The person to worship. Salvation of the Jews, of the Jews. It's said there in salvation of the Jews. The word salvation refers to Jesus Christ. And sometimes like here, the word is used to speak symbolically of the person who does the saving. For example, when Simeon had just seen the Christ child, he said in Luke 2.30, my eyes have seen your salvation. Jesus is here now directing the woman from the place of, of worship to the person of worship. Verse 23. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. So notice when it says that the Father is speaking, uh, seeking those who, who, who worships in spirit and in truth, that tells you there is a wrong way to worship. We must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So here's the prediction about worship. The hour is coming. There's a time coming when we will worship him in spirit and truth. True worshipers are not defined by the place where they worship, but by who they worship, the object of their worship, and how they worship. You see, God wants to be worshipped, and he deserves to be worshipped, but in a proper manner. Verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. This is how he wants to be worshipped. Worship is a a spiritual exercise, because God is is spirit. So again, it's not not the where of the worshiper, but how. It's the how of the worshiper that's important to God. The how is to be spiritual, So the posture and the place doesn't really matter as much as the heart of worship and the heart in worship. The heart and the soul of man is to be involved. 
Our entire being is to be involved in worship. Just praying over some beads or in some repetitious chant, that's not worshiping. So you see, this would really convict the woman. God wants people to worship him in truth, in holiness, and in purity. Again, it's not the place. It's the godliness of the one that's worshiping. It's important. Sincerity in worship is more important than the location of worship. It's not the place where the worship takes place, but it's the truthfulness of the worship that takes place. It's not the circumstances of the worshiper, but the character of the worship that matters. Verse 25 through 30. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us of all things. Jesus said said to her, I who speak to you am he. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? Notice they came and they saw him talking to this woman. But it says that, it, 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 it says that, uh, that um, they, didn't, they didn't say anything out loud. They're thinking to each other, hey, why is he talking to this person? Why, you know, why are you seeking this, this woman? Verse 28, the woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. So in spite of her ignorance, there was one truth that this woman did know. The Messiah was coming. And he was going to reveal the secrets of hearts. Now, where did she learn this truth? We don't know. But wherever she got that, she received that seed somewhere, that seed of truth. All those years that had been lying there in her heart, buried in her heart until this very moment. Now that little seed was going to bear fruit. Our Lord's response to what she said was literally, I speak to you. I who speak to you am he. I'm the Messiah. And he dared to utter the holy name of God. I am he, the Messiah. And at this point, the woman put her faith in Jesus Christ and was saved. Immediately, notice what happened when, she, when the minute she was saved. Notice what happened. She wanted to share her faith. She wanted to share her faith with others. So she went into the village and she told the men that she had met the Messiah. When you think about how little spiritual truth that she knew, her zeal and her testimony puts a lot of believers to shame. But God used her simple testimony and many of the people came out to the well to meet Jesus. The rabbi said, it is better that the words of the law be burned than be delivered to a woman. But Jesus had other ideas. Jesus didn't think like the rabbis. Now, why did she leave her water pot? At the well when she, re- when she rushed off to the city. Some people say that was a, a symbol of her old life. She left the old life and she went to share the new life with others. Now she, and some say now she had the living water within and she was satisfied. She didn't need that old pot anymore. Also, some say that she intended to come back. And maybe in the time that she was gone, the disciples and Jesus could use the vessel to satisfy their thirst. 
But now the racial barriers and those struggles that had existed before, they were gone. Now they were all one in faith. They were all one now in faith and in love. She didn't come to faith in Christ right away. Notice Jesus took his time with her, ministering to her. And in doing so, notice, he gets a good example for us. He gives us a good example in how to share the gospel. She was definitely the least likely person for salvation. And yet God used her to win almost an entire village. Let's close with verses 39 through 42. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him. Notice. Because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe. Not because of what you said. For we ourselves have heard him. And we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus Christ because the woman had said, hey, he told me everything I ever did. And when the men came out to see him, when the people of the village came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for a couple of days. He stayed long enough for a lot, of, a lot more people to hear his message and to become believers. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe not just because of what you told us, but because we have seen him ourselves. And they said, Now we know that he is indeed the Savior of of the world. Notice the Samaritan woman was a fruitful believer. And now she's bearing fruit. Many believed. And then she would bear more fruit. Because many more believe. And today she continues to bear much fruit. Because look at how many today believe. To the glory of God. She's a testimony. Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful encounter of this woman at the well, God. Beautiful work that Jesus did in her life and then in many others. As they believe the testimony of Christ. That he is the living water. And that he can save. And that he will save. But first comes the forgiveness of sins. The sin problem has to be dealt with before anything else can be done. Before one can receive eternal life, the forgiveness of God. The sin must be repented of and it must be forsaken. And then God will forgive. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. This is a perfect message for you. This is the as the woman had a... a a a wicked past. A past of just existing, wandering through life, 
no goals. All those marriages in her life, all those relationships was just a, a, a symbol. They were a sign of her emptiness. A sign of, of the need of that living water. All those things did was just get her through. All, they, all, those, all those relationships did was, was get her through lonely nights. Yet she got up the next day still lonely, still seeking, still empty, until she met Christ. And it's the same thing with every life without Christ. We're just making it day by day. We're just filling the empty void in our life with whatever enjoyment we get at the time. But then it starts all over again the next day. Emptiness. If you're here this morning and you recognize that in your own life. Jesus doesn't want to interrogate you. He doesn't want to have you give him all the details. He just says, hey. I'll forgive you of your sins. If you repent, if you confess them to me. The worship team is going to lead us in a time of worship. And if you recognize your need of the living water. Of which you will never thirst again. You want to receive his forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Then as we worship, you get up out of your seat. You make your way down the aisles towards the steps up front, and I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.